100.7 FM WHIN 1010 AM presents Sumner County Spotlight, a weekly public affairs program each Sunday at 10 AM. Sumner County Spotlight, exclusively by FNM Bank. 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville. FNM Bank offers personal banking, business banking, and mortgage loans too. Right here in Hendersonville, FNM Bank is one of the top independent banks in Tennessee. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. MMLS number 518158. Here's your host for Sumner County Spotlights, Tony Richards. Good morning and welcome to Sumner County Spotlight this Sunday morning brought to you by FNM Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard and at myfmbank.com. And with us this morning, we've got the uh, Sumner County Schools Assistant Director of Instru- Instruction. Hope I got that right. <laughs> so <laughs> if I didn't, you know, make sure you correct me. It's Scott Langford. Scott, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Did I Was I close on the title? Yeah, actually, you got it. It's a mouthful of a title. All right. Well, you're also the chairman and commissioner for Sumner County, I'm assuming. Is that right? Or you yes, were that? Uh, yeah, still I am. I'm chairman of the Sumner County Commission. Okay, because well. you've got quite the resume here. It's hard for me to, like, you know, get a grip on it. <laughs> I'm just going to call you Scott, if that's cool. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, Scott... Um, you know, a lot to get into. Why don't we first, before we dive into how everything's affected the county and the school system and uh, and everything that's going on currently, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and, and uh, how you ended up doing what you're doing for a career? Not sure. I, I grew up here. I'm a Cottontown boy. I went to Beach Elementary, Hunter Middle School, and then uh, my dad was principal at White House High School, so I went to, I went to White House High School, and then um, I, was in the, I was in the Army for a few years, and then... Um, then finished, uh, started at West Point, then finished up at MTSU, and then went to grad school at Emory, and then lived down in Georgia for about 10 years, and then came back in 2007, and uh, actually went back to teach in 2009 at White House High School, where I went to school, and then uh, ended up being an assistant principal at White House Middle School, principal at White House High School, and then to the you know, to central office to be in charge of instruction now. Were you in education in Georgia, too? I taught four years uh, just south of the airport in Atlanta at uh, Forest Park High School in Clayton County. So you got to hear planes take off and on every three seconds. <laughs> oh um, yeah, I, yeah. In fact, we did a renovation. Uh, I was in a, I was in a portable for a year and a half, and I mean, like, uh, oh lordy, y- yeah. I mean, you could you could count the jets taking off. Yep, and trying to keep the kids focused, I'm sure, was fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Scott, so it sounds like you went into the family business if your family's been in education. Yeah, actually, I'm a third-generation Sumner County teacher. Wow, that's cool. So your grandparents were teachers, or one of them? Or? Well, my, my, actually, my great, all my great-aunts were teachers. Uh, you know, one, I think my, my great-aunt that lived, up, lived on the same farm that I grew up on, um, she taught, I think, she taught at Howard for, I think, 41 years. Mm-hmm. So pretty wow. much a family trade. That's amazing. Well, you know, you've been, uh, like you said, with the Sumner County School System for a while now, and, um, you know, it kind of expanded beyond a specific school. How did that happen, where you went, ended up going into administration? You know, I mean, it's probably also, I, I grew up, my dad became an assistant principal when I was, I think, two, and so I grew up in, in the hallways of Hendersonville High School, and then Beach High School, and then White House High School, so, you know, it was just something that I'd always kind of kept in the back of my mind um but you know i went and uh when i was i started off in higher ed and universities and then went into ministry for a while and then education so i was kind of back and forth between a few careers but then 
then once I got into education, I just started thinking about what I wanted to do. And as much as I love teaching and being in the classroom, I liked the, the leadership aspect. And so, uh, you know, I had the, the real privilege of getting to, you know, I was the, uh, believe it or not, I was the fourth principal at White House High School from 1958. Oh, my goodness. Um, wow. Yeah. So you were a yeah, short term so, uh, compared to those guys. <laughs> yeah, I really was. <laughs> yeah, four years was, I was four years principal there, so... That was, uh, you, you know, and there were a lot of exciting things. I got to be with my daughter's class from sixth grade at the middle school through 12th grade when they graduated. And then at that point, you know, like um, I loved White House. I could have spent the rest of my career there, but uh, had the opportunity to uh, apply for and, and get this job. And, uh, you know, it's it's really exciting to see the great things that go on in Sumner County and try to try to think about it from 49 schools instead of one. Did you ever think that, uh, you know, growing up in Cotton Town, that you'd actually have a high school of your own now? <laughs> No, I, I mean it's, it was you, we couldn't have comprehended it then because there weren't that many people that lived out there, and you know the school actually sits adjacent to my grandfather's farm, so it's it's right in the center of where I grew up. So it, it's really exciting. I was going to say people in Cotton Town and in that area just got to be so pumped. I, I mean it's you know it's it's exciting to see a see a school uh, campus come up from the from the ground up literally, and it's just exciting. You know I, I can't wait for the for. Sumner County to see what this new school campus is going to look like. It's going to be really exciting for us. Well, and it's always kind of fun to see what rivalries, you know, form. You think you know what they're going to be, but sometimes you're surprised. Just like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's fun. When I was growing up, White House and Portland were the huge rivalry. And then when I came back, because of the Sumner County-Robertson County split, it, White House Heritage, in our kids' mind, was the big rival. And Portland was a secondary rival at best. It's a that, that was a huge change from when I was in high school. So it'll be fun to see what kind of rivalries emerge. Yeah. Okay, you know, we've talked to Dr. Phillips a few time and, uh, times for, and, and his perspective as, as to what's going on, and this is obviously a fluid situation. And how has that affected your particular job uh, with, this, with the schools mm-hmm. as it relates to schools? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's uh, when you're in charge of instruction and basically we've We've taught, you know, the, the way we teach has changed some, but basically the, the structures and everything have been the same for about the last 80 or 90 years. And then in a period of about two weeks, we had to flip the way that we deliver instruction from being in a classroom with a teacher, in the classroom with students, to children being at home with their parents and us delivering instruction to them and supporting parents as they deliver the instruction. It's a it's a huge mindset shift, a structural shift, everything. So, um you know, I couldn't commend our teachers anymore, our principals, because we've essentially turned a really big ship of 30,000 students and 2,200 teachers in about two weeks. And, you know, we, uh, we, do some int- we do some surveying of our parents. And so right now about 82, 83% of them are really satisfied with the, the product that we're delivering and what they're able to accomplish at home. So, Well, that is wonderful you know, because I know there are systems mm-hmm. around this area that just are not – even still remotely close to being able to pull it off. Yeah, we were able very quickly, you know, we just have, we have a great team of instructional coaches and coordinators and principals and teachers. And, um, you know, I've been amazed with our teachers. It's like every obstacle that gets thrown in their path. They just, they just find a way to overcome and adjust. And, um, you know, it's really, it's really impressive. I enjoy getting up every morning and seeing on Facebook and Twitter what they're doing. Uh, you know, they're zooming with their classrooms. One of our, one of our principals mentioned that uh, she'd sat in on a kindergarten Zoom meeting, and she said it was like watching bats. But the <laughs> kids were having a great time, but they were they were all over the place. Oh yeah, well, I believe that you know preschool and, and kindergarten is like kind of like herding cats anyway. Is <laughs> oh yeah, 
Well, and I think, you know, but it's, it's you know, the thing that I, the things that I worry about the most is I, I feel like we're in a pretty good place instructionally. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we've been able, I feel pretty comfortable about what we've been able to push out to parents in terms of uh, providing, you know, not just um, online resources for them to click on and use, but actual lessons, you know, in uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, they're actually 30-minute lessons taught by teachers. Uh, we have for parents that don't have technology access, uh, our third to fifth grade teachers recorded for the state uh, lessons in English and math every day that play on PBS. So uh, those lessons are for kindergarten through eighth grade total. Um, so we have a lot of resources available to parents, but one of the things I'm really proud about that we've been working on is trying to find a way to make sure our kids have food and medicine and that they're safe. And so we put a lot of time and effort into We've asked every teacher to contact every student at least once a week, and then we have some other tools and methods we have to kind of follow up to make sure our kids are, are healthy and doing well. Um, and that's, that's a huge concern of ours. You know, we've built our entire program around, we call it care and curriculum. We want to make sure that everybody's healthy and safe and well, and then we also want to make sure that they're, they're getting the instructional resources that they need. And so we, we've kind of we've kind of built our program around that. We, we've steered really clear. Some districts are doing paper packets and we, we just don't feel like that's a safe route with the, with mm-hmm. the spread of the virus. Uh, so we've tried to avoid that. Well, I think, you know, maybe some people forget that the kids, while it may be hard on them or they're bored or whatever, or they're just, you know, going stir crazy. I think people might forget that it's hard on the instructors and the teachers as well. Cause you know, they're used to that. They want to see them. They, they, they have a vested interest in taking care of their kids. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Yes, our teachers are. You know, I think it's been really hard on them. You know, we have uh, we're doing grab and go lunches and breakfast twice a week at twelve sites across the county, and our teachers and principals have signed up in droves to to volunteer just so they can get out there and wave at the kids as they as they hand them meals. And you know, we were able last week we passed out sixty six over sixty six thousand meals in our twelve locations to wow. kids. So it, it's been a it's been a pretty amazing process to watch. That's pretty cool. So how um, either unprepared or prepared were you for something like this that kind of hit you out of the blue to be able to do things online? I mean, did you have a pretty good infrastructure, or did you kind of have to scramble and start from scratch? Or a, a little bit of both. You know, no one no one had a global pandemic playbook. Uh, anyone that says they did was is, is exaggerating. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So. You know, what we had is is we had a lot of online resources, but I would say what we didn't have was a way to connect them all together. Now, high school was a little bit easier because we have a we have an online platform that we use to offer, um, you know, credit recovery for kids that have failed, but also uh, the ability to take initial offering courses. So we had a pretty solid uh, high school platform. A lot of our teachers in high school use Google uh, Classroom. Right. So, and, and some in middle school and elementary even, but... You know, what we had to do, you know, the, the tough part is, is when you're looking, especially at that kindergarten to second grade age, you really want to limit the amount of time they're in front of screens. Right. So you're trying to find the right mix of Have some activities versus, and things uh, they could do. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, but I would yeah. imagine that the high school folks that were familiar with Google Classroom and things that, you know, platforms you could use were very, very helpful in helping the ones that didn't get ramped up and up to speed. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, really, honestly, all of our teachers were using something. I mean, it's just that, you know, what I, what I think it, it's brought to our attention is the need to be able to sync things together and have some, you know, not absolute uniformity, but have some common threads throughout the county. Because, you know, our elementary teachers were using a ton of different ways to, to connect to their kids and to share resources. And so part of the initial kickoff was just figuring out what we had that we were using 
because you know with being three quarters of the way through the year you don't want to you don't have to reinvent the wheel if, if a teacher already has an effective way to communicate with his or her class you don't want to come in and make them do something new or different right, so right but on the other know, hand you, you want to you uh, on the other hand i'm assuming though you want to make sure that you know what needs to get done is getting done um and if there mm-hmm. everybody's doing something different it'd be kind of hard to, to corral that i would think yeah, and, you know, so we've tried to develop – what we've done is we've developed some reporting tools. Like our, our main thing is just to make sure kids are okay. So, you know, we, we're able to uh, – our principals report each week how many of their students that they've been able to have contact with. And, I mean, our, our teachers have just done a tremendous job of, of contacting teachers and parents. It's been – I mean, excuse me, kids and parents. And it's been, it's been really remarkable because, you know, when – during normal times, everybody's so busy, sometimes it's hard to make those contacts. But now – What's really been neat to watch is our parents and teachers have really formed uh, great, great relationships during this process because we've kind of reversed roles. And it's been, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's kind of entertaining because I would like, you know, it's hard to teach kids. What's even harder to do is to teach your own kids. Uh, (laughs) that's a real challenge (laughs) well i'm sure a lot of uh, folks are are learning a lot uh both teachers and parents alike uh some probably uh enjoying it better than others but you know even if you can just give those guiding principles and and some some tips and ways to help your kids learn uh for the parents who Mm -hmm. may you know maybe they were a dual parent working household and had no experience doing this Mm mm-hmm so I'm sure your teachers and instructors were, were very helpful in trying to help them, you know, kind of get on board. Yeah, I think it's been, you know, it's just, and I think a lot of times, you know, like my, my, I've got a junior in high school and she's taking AP statistics. You know, I'm not, I've taken graduate statistics classes, but I'm not a huge help. You know, we, we hop on Khan Academy together. We try to use online resources. We, so, you know, as a parent, I feel, uh, I feel very blessed that she's a really strong AP stats teacher that reaches out to her because if she were, if she were dependent on me, would be in trouble. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, we're coming up on our first break here. We're talking with Scott Langford uh, from the Sumner County School Corporation, and we're going to come back uh, in just a little bit and maybe talk about what the next few weeks and the rest of the school year, if any, uh, and or next year, how it's all going to play out. And uh, you may not be able to say much yet, but uh, we'll try to pull some info out of you here in just a minute. <laughs> On Sumner County Spotlight, brought to you by FNM Bank. We'll be back right after these messages. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. Welcome back to Sumner County Spotlight this Sunday morning. I'm your host, Tony Richards, and we're speaking with Scott Langford, the uh, Director of Instruction for the Sumner County School Corporation. And, Scott, what's the, what, what does this future hold? If, if, what can you tell us over the next few weeks? Uh, I know that the, uh, the state has sort of put everything off till the 1st of May and when things hopefully will start opening up. What's, what's it looking like for the school system, at least in Sumner County? Yeah, you know, we when we started, we just built out. You know, I, I just it's not good in terms of planning and mobilizing resources to just plan for one or two weeks. Like you know, you you plan long term and then hope that you come back sooner. So, you know, the good thing is we've got the flexibility. Depending on how, I, I mean, we're definitely closed. Our kids right now would be slated to come back on May fourth. Uh, so, but if they don't come back, you you're know, good. Um, You've got it figured out for the, mm-hmm. the the whole the rest of the year. I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. We basically we have uh, we have teams that put together uh, lesson plans for the following week. So basically, on a Thursday around noon, they submit them final plans, and we 
put them up on our Sumner Connect website on Friday morning, and parents can begin to access them. Teachers can access them for the following week. So, I mean, realistically, if we extend beyond May fourth, we'll just keep we'll just keep posting lessons and materials, and we'll keep rolling on that for the rest of the year. Um, you know, we want to we want to try to keep things as normal as possible for for parents and kids. So we're we're hopeful that we're going to be able to to you know our, our plan is to have graduation and have mm-hmm. it as as close to normal as possible because you know our seniors especially have had so much thrown at them over the last month and it's just you know with the loss of spring sports with the loss of uh, band concerts and competitions and plays and things like that you know we're we're just really hopeful that we'll be able and you know to have a face to face normal graduation and so we're gonna we're gonna hold out hope for that and plan you know. What we do in light if, 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 you know, if we're still in the situation mid-May, what that would look like. But our goal is, is as best we're able to give that graduation. I think it'll be, you know, it's wonderful for our seniors, and that's our top priority. But I think it'll just be good for our communities to have a little bit of normalcy. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and if you could do anything, even if it, it's in the summer, whatever, before they all head off to start their life in college. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's uh, certainly the class of 2020. It's something they're never going to uh, forget, that's for sure. It's been uh, unusual, yeah. to say the least. Yeah, and, you know, I've got to give a shout-out. The the venues and partners that we work with have just been amazing. You know, um, Long Hall Baptist, where we do a lot of our graduations, has just been over backwards to help and accommodate. Uh, all the venues where proms are held have said, hey, just tell us the dates. If we can do it, we'll, we'll make it work so these kids can, can have a prom. You know, so we're just hopeful we can hold on to as many of those things as we can. But, uh, you know, at the same time, our top priority has to be to, for everybody to be safe. Right, right. Well, and maybe it is it is a graduation of some kind, but maybe just not as many folks being allowed to be there, you know, or something. There's mm-hmm. always a always a mm-hmm. way around it, hopefully. But to, to celebrate what they have done and what they've had to do. Um, so what have you, have you noticed anything about just how kids are doing grade-wise or at least performance-wise since this began? Have they been able to kind of keep things going or did it dip a little like you would expect i suppose just from the the strangeness of it all but how are they Mm -hmm. doing yeah i think they you know i mean the the hard thing is is it's hard to monitor just to see what everyone's doing but i think you know i think the overwhelming majority of our kids are are working you know i got a actually when i came into the office today i got a when i came in i got a card from one of our students at, at beach high school and she was telling me all about the, the work that she's doing and how excited she is to still be able to work. And, I, you know, I think there are a lot of kids. Some of our principals have started doing morning announcements every morning on Facebook Live. Oh, that's and it, cool. And it's been, really yeah. inter- it's been really interesting how many people just get up and start their day that way. Now, I, I would say the average high school day is starting about 11 a.m., <laughs> yeah. you know, 8.15 8, a.m. But, uh, We're talking 11 but, to 7 p.m. or something, yeah. So, that, so. That, that's right. That's right. You know, I'll I tell you one of the most entertaining things is that our, our seniors at Merrill Hyde Magnet School uh, have uh, got on Minecraft and have built a replica of the high school <laughs> on or of the school on Minecraft. Uh, oh, Lordy. So they're, they're they haven't preparing. done the teachers, too, have they? Or <laughs> Oh, I'm sure they have. You know that. Uh. <laughs> Who would have thought a you know building block, you know Nintendo looking thing would be so popular? I still don't get it, but you know, hey, what do I know? <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's really amazing. I, it's when you realize you know I played a lot of Nintendo games when I was growing yeah, up. Yeah, I'm like right this now. is like really basic. We're talking like Atari but, type stuff. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's when you realize you're getting old is when the video games no longer make any sense to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They're looking, is that are you watching a TV show or no? That's actually a game. Whoa, okay. That's yeah. real. Yeah. So um okay, I mean if you were to look in your crystal ball a little bit, I mean I, I I'm sure everything's sort of out of your control at the moment, but mm-hmm. what do you think May fourth? I mean, a fifty fifty chance? Uh, worse than that? Do or you're not allowed to say or let me let me give you my stock answers. We we check with the healthcare professionals every day to see, you know, we want to get school back as badly as anyone, but we've ultimately got to make decisions that are best for our community and for our children's safety and well-being. So we just have to kind of kind of monitor. It's not satisfying, but we just have to kind of monitor and make that decision as information becomes available. Right, and I know Sumner County is a little behind the eight ball, as uh, Mayor Brown was, I think, saying yesterday or day before. You know, we've got a unusually high percentage of people who've passed away because of the situation at the Senior Citizen Center as far as a county. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, in totality, if you look at it, uh, in total cases, we're not that bad. But that particular mm-hmm. instance kind of threw our numbers kind of through the roof. Yeah, and I think what's so hard to get your mind around with this is it's just so contagious that you can have, you know, if you're not taking all these precautions that we're taking, that I know drive everybody crazy. I mean, I, I'll say I'm chief and foremost of sinners, like, I have two or three days where I'm stuck in the house. I go a little, I get more than just a little stir crazy. But, um, but you know, when you look at how, I read an article last night that was talking about how if the 49ers had won the Super Bowl, the, the, the exponential growth would have been massive because COVID was already active in San Francisco after the Super Bowl. So it's, it's just hard to imagine how, you know, 10, 15 people can get infected and it spreads so rapidly. Well, and so much information is available to the public that it is hard to discern what's truth, what's not, because, you know, doctors mm-hmm. are not all going to agree on exactly what's going mm-hmm. on. That's, so it is, uh, it's it's challenging for, for everyone, really. Yeah, I just, you know, for me, like I, I talk a good bit to Ken Widener, who's in charge of our emergency responses in Sumner County, and Ken's been in public health work for 36 years, and when, when Ken is concerned about things, then that makes me concerned about things. And, mm-hmm. You know, when when I saw, you know, I'm so thankful for the leadership that we have with him and Chief Miller and uh, Sheriff Weatherford that, um, you know, we get we get great first responder care and concern. But, you know, the way that they were able to prepare in terms of having the, the appropriate amount of PPE and equipment and everything like that, we've really benefited from the planning and work that they did that's probably really helped us to minimize the scale and scope of what's happened in Sumner County. Yeah, and that's good. And I think, you know, now we're starting to read about, even when you do open things up, about a second wave. It it happened during the Spanish flu, where I think more people died mm-hmm. uh, than there was in the first wave. And, and it's just, you know, I think the, it's sort of become accepted that there's going to be one. It's how bad, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are those are unnerving things a little bit, especially when you talk about kids in school. You know, it just is. Yeah, and it pushes us to think, you know, I think um, we've started to try to think. I mean, of course, long-term planning right now is like going down to the beach and drawing in the sand with a stick. You know, when the tide comes in, yeah. it's going to wash most of it away. Yeah, exactly. But you still need to, you know, I think uh, President or Dwight Eisenhower said when he was uh, reflecting on World War II, he said, you know, plans are almost useless, but planning is essential. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're just trying to, we're trying to get our mind wrapped around right now about, you know, this is going to change education in, in a lot of ways, uh, many for the better. 
you know, one of the things that we're going to be much better at is the way we connect digital, you know, virtual learning with what we do in the classroom. Which and I think so, was probably going to come eventually, but there was no hurry. But now it's like, wow, right. we've, we, we, we've probably discovered some amazing things that you can continue to use maybe if somebody's sick, but they still want to work from home. Well, hey, mm-hmm. no problem or whatever. Yeah, and I, you know, I think one of the exciting things is, is we've kind of fallen into nationally this kind of rut with testing and everything. And I think what's been really remarkable is, as you step back and watch is when we've loosed our teachers' creativity, they've done some really amazing work with what they've accomplished with their kids, mm-hmm. you know, w- through parents and, and working together. And so I think, you know, I'm hopeful that one of the things we can do is bring back that uh, curiosity and uh, that aspect of learning. And, you know, and I think it's going to call into question you know, we're going to, have to look at some things like I'm hopeful that we can examine high school career paths. You know, we need more kids coding and doing different things like that. Um, I'm hopeful we'll get some flexibility. Um, you know, it's always when you have something like this that shakes up the entire system, it's always a good time to step back and say, you know, now that we're putting things back together, what are some things? This is our opportunity to make some changes. What are some changes that are better for our kids for the next 25, 30 years? Right. Um, so how often do you talk with the, the different schools and, and teachers? Is that sort of a constant thing uh, with what you're doing now versus maybe, I would imagine, maybe you're talking mm-hmm. with them more than you did uh, when it was normal. I don't know. Right. Oh, way, way more now. Um, you know, one, because we're not, we're not all busy running school buildings and things in the way that we have in the past. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we meet, we meet twice a week with our principals for about an hour. We meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, I do every Monday morning about 8 a.m. I I record a, a memo for our teachers just with some um, information and guidance and encouragement, and we release that about 8 a.m. on Mondays. We talk to principals twice a week, and then we do a Facebook Live once a week to just give updates to the community and then take questions. And so, you know, the, the communication part has been, I think that's been a real positive because we've really, we've had to really, you know, think through and one we've had just so much information to convey to you know to principals and teachers on one hand but also to our parents and community on the other right well as we uh get ready to wrap up this part of the program um can you tell us again where people would look to get the latest updates uh whether live uh, or through facebook or through your websites or and where would they likely hear about any upcoming announcements uh, with regard to may 4th and and when things just might come back a little bit so we we try to hit a bunch of different avenues. You know, our website, summerschools.org, is always a great starting point. For our for our instructional materials, it's summerschools.org and then slash Sumner Connect, or you can just Google Sumner Connect, and it'll pop up. Um, also, you know, our Facebook page, we keep everything up to date there. We're on Twitter, we have a we have an instructional department Twitter uh, account. It's uh, co underscore Sumner. Um, you know, at the same time, we always use School Messenger, which is our way to place a phone call or text message to all the all the families, all of our kids, because mm-hmm. you know, some not everybody's on Facebook or Twitter. Right. Uh, so, so, some people are really wise and they just avoid Facebook uh, uh, or Twitter in general. <laughs> it's the stream of consciousness that comes out of your mouth and ruins careers. I'm like, I will oh, never yeah, tweet. Absolutely. Sorry, because you know, <laughs> it's it's bound every time you post something that there's regret sets in immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, but we, you know, we we try to hit all those multiple platforms and uh, share everything there. But you know, if it's something, if it's something big about school closures, things, it'll be we'll do a phone call to all the to all the parents, and then it'll probably be on TV, and then it'll definitely be on our website, Facebook page. 
Well, uh, you know, I must tell you, and I'm not just saying this uh, because of, of Dell and yourself and, and the other uh, the people in the administration, y- you know, you hear a lot of things about a lot of different districts and schools and things, but you don't hear it about Sumner, and that is a good thing because it means um, not that everything's perfect in a well-oiled machine, but I'll tell you mm-hmm. what, when you start comparing it, um, it's pretty darn good. So I think we're, we're everyone, yeah, we- everyone in Sumner is pretty blessed. Well, we, we're really blessed with great teachers and principals. They do an outstanding job, and I'm thankful for them each day. Well, thank you, Scott, uh, for taking the time to talk to us, bringing us up to speed on what's going on, and uh, we appreciate it. We hope to have you back again. Oh, yes, sir. Anytime. I'm glad to do it. Thank you. Okay, that is Scott Langford. He is the Assistant Director of Instruction uh, at the Sumner County School Corporation, giving us uh, all kinds of good insight into uh, the schools in Sumner County, and we're going to come back with more of our program in just a moment. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. Good morning and welcome back to Sumner County Spotlight this Sunday morning, brought to you by FNM Bank at myfmbank.com and also 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville. And as our second guest today, we're excited to have Dr. Rolando Toyos of the Toyos Clinics. He's also a uh, board-certified ophthalmologist, best-selling author, and he's got a new book out too, uh, which we're going to talk about because it's about the pandemic. So good morning, Dr. Toyos. Good morning. How's it going? Thanks for having me. It's going well. How are you holding up? <laughs> we're we're trying. We're making it. Of course, I ask that of all doctors right now. But um, so, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? And uh, you know, because I'm sure people are curious as to why we're having an ophthalmologist on the air this morning. But there's lots of good reasons. And if you can maybe just tell us a little bit about your background, and then we'll uh, dive into some questions. Yeah, so uh, when I was in medical school, I actually did four years of research in a microbiology lab, and then the dean of our school was a microbiologist. So we actually wrote a book together called Flash Micro that was for medical students to learn about microbiology. And one of the interesting things is that we did have a section in there about coronaviruses. So people think that this coronavirus is new, but coronaviruses have been around for a while. And this is the seventh coronavirus that's uh, come up. And in the past, we've the recent past, we've had MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, was a coronavirus. And then the first SARS in 2002 that came out of China as well was a coronavirus. So I was working on a health and wellness book uh, in, at the end of 2018 into 2019, And my wife and I were going to go to China to work with a hospital there on a research project, a joint research project. So I've been actually going to China here for the last several years, teaching doctors on different operative techniques and other things. So we get this call. uh, We were supposed to go in November, and we got a call in late October uh, by one of the doctors that was involved in this research. And he said, hey, um, I don't think it's a good time to come. We think we may have a uh, another SARS outbreak. Oh my! So that was the first. Yeah. So that was way back in October, and then November things really in the middle by middle November. Then it was for sure that they had uh, a SARS outbreak. So back People then, did you kind of did you get a kind of a whiff that you thought this could be ugly? Yes, 
And I've been following it from there and realized how ugly it was over there. And it was actually an ophthalmologist that was a whistleblower that said, hey, I've got a SARS uh, outbreak. And that ophthalmologist actually wound up uh, passing away uh, because of the coronavirus. So once that started happening, I got my microbiology hat on and uh, pandemics and viruses and microbiology is going to be like a one chapter in my book. But then I just started doing the research, and I said, I really need to expand this out, and uh, made it several chapters in the book. And I thought it would be better in terms of I would be able to get people's attention on health and wellness, because the people that are actually, the, uh, there's a higher percentage of people dying who have either a pre-condition, uh, pre-existing uh, condition or have some type of health problem. So... Now it's become if you can keep your health up and keep wellness, that you would survive uh, these pandemics better. What so about the uh, what about the doctor that passed away? You said that was a whistleblower. Was it prolonged exposure, or was he having? You think had some underlying health issues? Well, prolonged exposure definitely plays into it because what they did in Wuhan to control uh, the disease is they actually uh, closed the hospital and kept all those healthcare workers in that area for 45 days and oh my. didn't let them out. Yeah. So, you know, the viral load that you're getting uh, when you're in that kind of environment does put you at increased risk for suffering complications from the virus. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the, the, a little, it's not just contacting of the virus, contracting the virus, but the viral load. So that's why, the masks, when people are saying no masks, saying, yeah, we do want masks, because, again, if you get a huge viral load uh, on you versus a little bit, that makes a difference on how your body fights off the, the infection. Well, you know, it's funny because the masks, the deal, it just didn't start off well. There was so many mixed messages. It does help. It doesn't help. It doesn't really matter. It's airborne. It's not airborne. Um, that kind of messed everything up, didn't it? I think it did, but I think part of it was that, you know, a lot of manufacturing of these masks have gone off to China. So even now when I'm getting masks and I'm trying to get them out uh, to essential businesses, I'm ordering uh, from a place in the U.S. that is getting it uh, from China. So as we have pushed off more and more of our manufacturing offshore, it does put us at risk when you come into this. So I think one of the things that the CDC was worried about is that if we say, okay, everybody has to have masks, then what happens to the healthcare workers? Because we have healthcare workers now that are working full shift and they aren't changing masks or using the same mask over a, a three or four day period. Uh, and that's putting them at risk uh, as well. So they want, didn't want, I think, create a panic and have everybody go out and get a mask. But if you look at when I travel to China, one of the things that you will see is you will see people wearing uh, masks out in the streets. And one of it is, is they've really uh, taught the population that if you think you're sick, you should start wearing your mask so that you uh, don't infect others. Right. And I think this is really going to, and this is you know one of the reasons why I wrote the book, and try to get it out there as quickly as possible is that this is really going to change the way, uh, change our behavior. That 
now in the United States, it won't be just visiting tourists that you see with masks, but you're going to be seeing uh, people here with masks. And I believe that any of the essential businesses that are open, uh, one of the things that you should require is that you see them wearing masks because you could be asymptomatic for quite a while and shedding virus before you even know it. So there was a study that just recently came out where uh, 200 uh, pregnant women came into the hospital. They were tested. They were all asymptomatic, but out of the 200, you still had about 30 of those patients test positive uh, for COVID. Hmm. So, you know, you had a pretty early heads up on this. Um, but you've also said that you've done lots of research uh, in school and and as a researcher uh, that there were you know lots of different versions of of coronavirus. Um, how worried should we be, and how deadly is this thing really? So all these viruses, it just all depends on how your body reacts. So you know we've had de- uh, a lot of pandemics. So let's say, for example, the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu didn't kill older people who were sick. The Spanish flu actually killed young people who had a very robust immune system so that they would get infected uh, with the Spanish flu and they would get what's called a cytotoxic storm where all these inflammatory mediators go. So uh, you saw a large percentage of younger people uh, getting sick. This seems to be affecting the people who are older and have uh, some sick, but you still have cases of young people who uh, have to go on a ventilator because you still have this same uh, cytotoxic storm. So you should never make any kind of assumptions with this. That's why it was very, and it could have it could have really come back to bite them. But all those young people that in the beginning, one of the myths is if you're young, you don't have to worry. You're not going to have a problem. And they went off to to spring break and, you know, had had their spring break all together. And uh, another thing that I think we'll do differently uh, once we look at and look back on this is where we have all these young college kids in school and uh, they could be asymptomatic, and then what you say is, okay, we're going to close the colleges, and you guys go back uh, to your home. So say we have a college in New York, let's say NYU. My daughter's going to NYU next year. Mm -hmm. So NYU closed down, and then you have kids from not only New York, but you have kids in Tennessee, Connecticut, Florida. Now you're sending maybe some asymptomatic kids who have COVID, back to their hometown, they're interacting with their friends, their friends are going and interacting with their parents, and then uh, that's how you get a, that's how you get a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, where, do, will it change just our life in general, and why this one versus any of the other pandemics, or will this eventually uh, go away if we can beat it and, and, and arise again one of the, with another pandemic 20 years from now or whatever. So this is why I'm, I called the book Pandemic Age. It, that wasn't coined by me. That was coined by another professor who wrote a book uh, uh, called The Viral Age in 2012. And basically, we're going to see more and more of these uh, viruses mutating and getting into humans. And the reason is uh, a couple of reasons, but let's just take one, for example, we're we're getting 
getting the population so that we're putting them in places where there was an ecosystem of animals. You tear down that area, now one animal can mix with another. So, for example, in this coronavirus, you had, uh, and there's conflicting data, but uh, maybe bats interacting with dogs. So dogs eating some bat meat, that virus now mutates into something different, and then you go dogs uh, to humans. Or the first SARS outbreak went bats to an animal in China called civets, and then civets uh, to humans. So as you start breaking down ecosystems and deforestation and, and these animals start interacting uh, more, then you're going to see more of these viruses. Or, for example, in China, the first time uh, I went to China, I, re I realized that since they've had times where there was starvation in the country, uh, really they had to utilize everything and eat everything. So they really have a a diet where certain things that we wouldn't eat, uh, they're eating. Uh, and you kind of say, well, what's, what's going on here? And, th and that's the whole reason. So now you're getting humans interacting with uh, animal species that they haven't interacted with uh, before. So this intermingling of these viruses between animals are, are getting to humans. So like bird flu or MERS, the Middle East, respiratory syndrome, it was camels uh, to humans. So did some humans eat some camel meat? How did, how did this cross over from one species uh, to, an, to another? I see. Is it so, worth it because of the fact that it's a respiratory thing make it just that much more potentially lethal? Yeah. So a lot of this can be looked at as an acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is called uh, ARDS. So this one really is affecting the lungs in a different way. The immune response by your body is uh, creating this cytotoxic storm, and what's happening is the lungs are shutting down. So I've already talked to several people who have had COVID, been in the uh, hospital. Uh, I haven't uh, talked to anybody who's had to go under the vent uh, as of yet, but uh, they they talk about at nighttime they feel like they're drowning, that they can't get uh, one breath in. There was one uh, patient that I talked to that said that he uh, tried to keep himself up at night because it was so bad uh, that uh, he felt that he was just going to lose air and, and, and die. So this is affecting the lungs. You're seeing it like an acute respiratory distress uh, syndrome. And uh, luckily, doctors and, and ICUs and others, we have uh, the, the experience in dealing with these patients with, with ARDS. But the reason why the curve wanted to be flattened is, yeah, we can handle uh, four or five of these patients at one time. But then when you get a flood of patients, which is what's happened in Wuhan and which is what's happened in New York, and uh, now your resources are very strained, and you might not be able to handle these patients the way you would like to. Okay. We're talking with Dr. Rolando Toyos, uh, board-certified ophthalmologist, best-selling author, too, of Insider's Guide to Medical School Admissions and Dry Eye Disease Treatment. 
in the year uh, 2020. He's also got a brand new book out called Optimum Health in the Pandemic Age, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about that book and why he added some extra chapters uh, regarding the pandemic, which makes perfect sense. And we're going to come back with more of our program right after these messages. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. Welcome back once again to Sumner County Spotlight this Sunday morning. I'm your host, Tony Richards, with our second guest today, Dr. Rolando Toyos of the Toyos Clinics. And he's got, uh, you've got three of those around the area or more? Um, you have more? We have three in the Nashville area, and then we have one in Memphis, and then one in South Haven, uh, Mississippi. And then I have a specialty dry eye clinic in New York City, which we had to uh, suspend uh, because of this outbreak. Right. And uh, your locations in Tennessee are, I know we've got one in Franklin, I think Green Hills, and uh, is mm-hmm. the other one up north? Skyline. And then we have Skyline um, TriStar Medical Center, and that's where we are part of the trauma team. So we take care of all of the eye injuries that come in due to trauma. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us about your new book? Uh, I believe it's at Amazon. It's already out, correct? Yeah, so the uh, e-version is out. We wanted to get it uh, out as soon as possible because there's so much information in terms of health and wellness to help patients through a pandemic. It's called Optimum Optimum Health in the Pandemic Age. And what I did is when I uh, found out of what's going on in Wuhan, I just expanded on what I've been reading about in uh, for pandemics. And I just found out so much information, so much history, which is, which is great, is if you know that history, when you see the things that are coming out on social media and stuff, you can actually decipher on uh, is it true, is it not true, just based on the, the information that you read. So, like, for example, I'll give you in the beginning, the uh, people were saying, uh, oh, we're handling this so terribly if our founding fathers would have handled it so much better. Well, actually, they had an epidemic of yellow fever that happened in 1793 in Philadelphia. At that time, that was our temporary capital. And you had, at that time, Jefferson, Hamilton, and and Washington trying to deal with this epidemic that was killing one in five people. They didn't have the science, so they didn't know what was killing people. But there was arguments between uh, Hamilton and Jefferson. So Hamilton thought, okay, it's these immigrants that we're allowing come into Philadelphia and from the West Indies. They're bringing this disease. We need to just uh, close the ports, uh, not let them come in. Jefferson was saying, well, it's because of the poor conditions, because the disease started out in the poor areas of Philadelphia. So he's thinking it's the squalor that's causing uh, these patients to die. So you had this, these two people fighting when it was actually mosquitoes uh, that was uh, transmitting uh, this vi- this virus and and killing people. Then you had Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, who was also a physician, and he was treating patients. The the problem with the, his treatment was he was bloodletting and treating them with mercury. So oh, bloodletting. Yeah. Re- yeah. <laughs> called caused mercury poisoning stuff. and okay great and then mer- well and some of us remember poisoning. playing with mercury when we were five wasn't yeah. you know, the, the smartest yeah. thing on the planet but you know 
Do you remember that in our science class? Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) Okay, kids. Mercury will make you... Mercury will make you mad as a hatter, which is a true thing, because hatters were always uh, dealing with mercuries to make their to make their hats, so they would have these tremors and uh, lose uh, brain cognitive function, so they they would wind up being crazy. So that's where mad hatters came from. So you had uh, so uh, Hamilton uh, was a Federalist, and uh, Benjamin Rush wasn't, and so he didn't go. Luckily, Hamilton, when he got sick with yellow fever, he didn't go to Benjamin Rush. He went to uh, another doctor who was actually doing techniques that were learned in the uh, West Indies because they they had dealt with yellow fever before. And then people were like, well, these guys would have handled it so much better. What Jefferson and Washington did is they just left. They said, okay, wait a second. People are dying around me. Yeah, Uh, Some of my staff have died. Uh, we're off to Virginia. Hamilton, you stay here and hold down the fort while we uh, while we head off to our you know, place. It's and, funny how no matter uh, what you do, it becomes political no matter what, doesn't it? <laughs> no matter what. No matter what. So that's why I don't get into the ups and downs of the political battle. And, don't, and I don't think that this is anything different than uh, was before. So Jefferson, when Hamilton said he was sick with yellow fever, Jefferson thought that that was a political ploy to get people to uh, favor Hamilton and feel sorry for him and feel like he was more uh, of a patriot. You. Yeah. And huh. then uh, Washington looked at, uh, you know, found out Hamilton was sick and told him, look, don't, wor- don't worry, you'll be fine. And he sent them six bottles of wine. He said, just stay in your house, drink some wine, and just relax. See, they, so, were, they were doing uh, distancing back then. <laughs> distancing back then. So you, you learn these kind of things and you you realize there's a history to it. Or the one that, that gets me is the uh, hydroxychloroquine. Right. What's, what's going on with that? Because that. I'm going to ask you about all these weird things. That, I'm going to ask you about the wet markets. And just, you know, give, mm-hmm. give us your opinion on all that. So what about the, the chloroquine? Okay. So if you go back in history, uh, quinine, which was uh, taken from the bark of the Kinchona uh, uh, tree, and quinine was shown to help in malaria. So, and it does. It does a great job of stopping and killing the parasite uh, when you have malaria. So this goes way back, maybe even to the 17th, the, you know, 17th century of, of quinine being uh, used for that. Uh, quinine is a precursor to hydroxychloroquine uh, and chloroquine. Well, what's happened is every time, since it did such a great job with malaria, every time there's been a viral outbreak, uh, quinine or chloroquine. Is it kind of their go-to thing or something? It's go-to. Yeah. It's like it's thrown out there. So it has some anti-inflammatory effects. There um, might be, and we we say that every time, that there might be that uh, it stops the virus from getting into cells. So it's the go-to as we're grasping for, for straws. Uh, you know, people need something to grasp to, to go, okay, there, there's something out there that uh, I can take. Mm-hmm. But it's never been shown to help in any of these uh, viruses. It always uh, pops its head. Uh, it comes back from the quinine. So this uh, is no surprise <laughs> to you. You kind of expected this would come up again. 
That's right. And, you know, quinine was used in the Spanish flu. Didn't work, but it, yeah. it was thrown out there as, hey, we've got something for the Spanish flu. It was thrown out for SARS. Hey, we've got something for the first corona outbreak. It I got you. It was thrown out there for MERS. So it's, it's something that's always thrown out. Uh, it makes uh, some sense scientifically, but uh, it has this status of here's this mysterious medication that uh, may help, and let's roll it out. But when I talk to the doctors in uh, Wuhan and in China, it didn't work at all. So, so you had you had again. been uh, you'd spent some time in China, and so tell me about the yeah. wet markets. What you know you you talked a little bit about the history, and, and you know if people don't have anything to eat, they've got to eat whatever's available. Uh, understandable, right. but then that causes other issues if the human body's never been exposed to that. So, what about these wet markets? Are they a problem? They are a problem because they consider certain things. They call them delicacies. But really, they, they have their historical roots on the fact that, you know, there wasn't any food and people were starving. So well, so not know, refrigerated real well, if at all. No, none, none of it. None of it. And so, yeah, you can go and probably order bad. I've never been to one of these wet markets. The first time I went to China, they, they would put something in front of me and say, here, try this. And then they tell you? Then I would try it. <laughs> and then they would tell me, and then that was it. I lost, like... Every time I go to China, well, the first few times that I went, I would lose so much weight. So I just started bringing protein bars and just yeah. e- eating protein. The, f- the first time I went to China with protein bars, I was supposed to be there a week. I brought 20 protein bars with me, and I ate them all in the first two days. Oh, boy. So, so, so yeah, you don't want them saying, hey, by the way, that was calico that you just had. Oh, great. Thanks. Um, so, uh, exactly. so, doctor, you've got this book on the, the uh, pandemic, and... So how we're, we've got about five minutes left. How how worried should everyone be? Will life ever return to normal? I'm going to ask you sort of these big global questions, and for you to look into your crystal yeah. ball. And impossible questions, I know, but maybe you know you could give people. You've done a lot of work and a lot of research on this stuff. Um, you know, are there things that you can say that would help people to realize? You know, we will get past this. Yeah, we will. You know, the uh, Wuhan is open back up. China's uh, opened up back up for business, but not in the same way. So, for example, if you go to a restaurant now uh, in China, they will limit you to three people to a table, and there's spacing uh, in between the tables. People are going out with uh, masks on. The workers that are serving uh, are wearing masks. So uh, our world is going to open back up, but things are going to change. You know, the, the, when people ask me, well, what can I do now? The things that you can do now is, is wash your hands. I was in a airport, uh, and I just wanted to do a little experiment on my own. And I just sat there at the men's airport to see how many people actually, uh, wash their hands. And this is when this was all starting to come out in the news. And really the 20 seconds of using soap, uh, there was, uh, one out of four people were actually washing their hands uh, properly. Some people weren't washing their hands. Some people are just using water and some people that did use soap would only use it for like five seconds and then move on. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to make some, some structural changes in, in the way you do things. The other thing is, and people ask me this all the time, if, what are you doing uh, now to, uh, uh, to, to, because of the pandemic? So I always take vitamin C 
you know, Linus Pauling was one of our smartest Americans, won two uh, Nobel Prizes, one in chemistry. Uh, and uh, he was a big believer in vitamin C. It turns out that when you're having a cytotoxic storm, you want to have vitamin C on board. And actually, one of the treatments in, that was working in China was high-dose vitamin C. High-dose vitamin C is used in acute respiratory distress as well. What how much, uh, how vitamin much vitamin C do you think somebody should take in a day? 1,000 milligrams, more so than that? I, yeah, I take a... In normal times, I take a thousand milligrams as a supplement. I'll have some orange juice in the morning, and I'll eat a uh, orange. Right now, I'm up to two thousand uh, milligrams per day as a supplement. Drinking more orange juice, probably a full glass uh, in a day, and having one to two oranges uh, a day as well. So, it boosts your immunity because it helps white blood cells uh, work better. But in a cytotoxic storm, what happens is you have all these inflammatory mediators, and what happens is there's a lot of iron that's released uh, from your body because things are breaking down. The cytotoxic storm is made worse with a lot of free iron in the bloodstream. What happens when you do high-dose vitamin C when these patients are having a cytotoxic storm is in a very uh, mild chemical reaction, that vitamin C reacts to the iron and actually just uh, makes the iron go away. I got so you. Now, you're now your inflammation that you were having from the cytotoxic storm isn't times by 10. It's reduced to just a normal inflammatory response. So having some vitamin C on board helps your immunity, and it also will help you uh, if you get sick with the uh, virus. And then in terms of how people are going to treat this, it's antiviral, so we're going to have to, there's a couple of antivirals out there. There was one that was very effective in China that you're not hearing about very much here in the United States. That's Avigan, uh, and it's worked well. Actually, the Japanese uh, uh, prime minister sent a whole bunch of Avigan to uh, the White House, and you're going to be hearing more about uh, anti, antivirals in terms of uh, when these patients get infected. When people talk about vaccine, if you know the history of vaccines, you realize that a vaccine is not coming anytime soon. We're not going to have a vaccine in three months, four months. Usually it takes 12 to 18 months to develop uh, an effective vaccine uh, towards a virus. And that's just because you have a vaccine or just because you've been infected and you have antibodies doesn't mean the next coronavirus, you won't be affected by it. Right. So, but as you've given us some great tips and things we can do to keep yourself healthy. Exactly. Well, Dr. Uh, Toyo, so go ahead. No, go ahead. One, one myth that I want to disperse out there is that, so tonic water does have uh, quinine in it. You'd have to drink two liters to get to <laughs> be the same as one quinine pill. Oh, uh, Lordy. That, that, Your kidneys that, that, will get a, a workout. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you don't want to drink that much tonic water either. Right. But there is quinine in, in tonic water, but we've already dispelled the myth that quinine will do anything for you. All right. And we appreciate you taking the time and really giving us some great tips uh, to deal with this pandemic. And uh, the book is called Optimum Health in the Pandemic Age. And Dr. Toyas, if you could tell us one more time where to get that and uh, about the proceeds. Yeah, so currently it's an ebook, and all proceeds uh, will go to either nonprofits or will go to giving free care to patients that can't afford uh, health care. 
Well, we certainly appreciate the time, uh, Dr. Toyos of Toyos Clinics. There are three in the Nashville area, and uh, very enlightening and really informative, and I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to uh, talk to us and all of our listeners this morning. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, Dr. Rolando Toyos of the Toyos Clinics, we appreciate his time this morning, and that's going to wrap it up for Sumner County Spotlight for this week. And we will see you again next Sunday morning at 10 a.m. And we'd like to thank again our sponsor, FM Bank, at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville, and also at myfmbank.com. We will talk to you next week. Sumner County Spotlight has been brought to you exclusively by FNM Bank, 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville. Whether you need personal banking, banking for your business, or even home mortgages, FNM Bank can provide you with excellent service right here in Sumner County. Visit them today at myfmbank.com. Sumner County Spotlight will return next Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening.